podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast with MyDieselClaim.com. Hello, I'm Paul Haywood and welcome to the official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast, the show that takes you deeper than ever before into your football club. My guest today is one of the club's great names who scored over 100 goals for Albion and was part of the club's meteoric rise from League One to the Premier League. So, Glenn Murray, your life as a Brighton player ranged from League One relegation scraps to scoring in the Premier League and people saying you should be playing for England. Strikes me sometimes that without your generation to do the heavy lifting further down the leagues, uh, we wouldn't be looking at European football now, would we? (laughs) <laughs> oh well, I think that can be said going even further back from from my generation. But do you know what? It is really nice as now retired to sit back and watch the club keep progressing. It would be it would be really disappointing, and it would hurt to see the club go backwards from sort of where I and my group worked so hard to get it to. So, so for this new generation to t- keep taking it forward like they have, it's brilliant to watch. Yeah, one of your colleagues from that period was saying that there were so many so many leaders in that generation of Brighton players. They had strong players, leaders for really a decade, you know, pushing the club upwards into this great position it's in now. Yeah, we did. It was, I think definitely that the, the group that got out of the championship had a lot of leaders in it. And it, it had to have a lot of leaders because of the magnitude of what we did. And then... By that, I mean, obviously, getting to the promised land, but staying there is even more difficult. You're up against it week in, week out. You're collectively probably not as good as at least 17 other teams ability-wise in the Premier League. So how do you combat that? You have to be collective. You have to be strong. You have to look forward, never dwell. It's inevitable that you're going to get beaten badly in the Premier League and it's about putting those results to bed immediately and, and looking forward to the next one and, and, and remaining as positive as possible and, and I think to do that that group of players we had at that certain point were, were just ideal for that moment in time Strikers don't like competition and they don't like other people <laughs> scoring their goals so you know when you look at the, the first team squad now and you see Gel Pedro and Ansu Fati Danny Welbeck and Evan Ferguson up front you didn't have that kind of um, either competition for places or the or the support, really, the goal-scoring support, the quality of player. How hard was it for you to be constantly carrying that responsibility to get the goals? I wouldn't say it was hard for me because it was something that I prided myself on. And even if there was another four or five strikers at the football club, like, like there has been at other football clubs I've been at, you strive to get in the team and, and you strive to score goals. It's Listen, I'm lucky it's what I enjoyed doing as a child is scoring goals and imitating celebrations and I got to do it for real uh, for a very long time so I I think regardless who your teammates are uh, or how little help or how much help you've got that desire to score goals always burns so hard and when you look at Roberto De Zerbi's forward line now is that is that the best indicator do you think of how far the team has come and the strength of the playing squad well I think that the balance is really tipped because during my time, I think probably our strongest positions were centre-back and, and, and in defensive positions, whereas now it's completely tipped the other direction of the field and we're, we're super strong up front now and, and very, very exciting, may I add, with, with a couple of youngsters that potentially could go on to have absolutely glittering careers. Uh, so at the moment, I'm, I'm enjoying sitting back and, and watching those guys progress. But 
for me, it, yeah, it does show how far the football clubs come. Um, being able to attract those young talents and now it's about getting it out of them uh, on a more regular basis and watching them soar and, 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 and keep scoring goals and, and hopefully drive the club forward. And how do you get a large number of them into the same team at any one time? And because tactically the game has changed so much. When we grew up, it was like you play one striker or two strikers. It was as simple as that, wasn't it? But now there are all sorts of options and permutations, aren't there, for getting these players into the team? Yeah, there are. And fixtures help. We've got, we've got a huge fixture list this season, what we've been our first year in Europe. Carabao Cup, we've obviously bowed out of, but I actually think that's a little bit of a blessing. The Premier League takes its toll on, on you, not only physically but mentally as well so I, I think I think the amount of fixture we've got and I think the next generation are more susceptible to having rests and I won't call it being dropped um, being taken out for tactical reasons more so so I, I think I think they're more accepting these days and I think there's just more change within the 11 weekly than there ever ever has been at, at every football club it's, it's the trend that we're going through and in, in all fairness, the boys need it. I mean, it's it's an exhausting schedule. Not just the playing of the games, the travelling, the uh, the media attention they get. It's it's even though you might not think it subconsciously, you're taking so much in. Yeah, and uh, would you agree that the game is so much faster and more intense now that it's not just about the number of games you play; it's about the way the game is played in the current era. Yeah, I mean the, the five substitutes. I mean, speaks volumes, doesn't it? You, to be able to keep that speed and that quality up, we've we've decided to go with five substitutes. That's a relatively new thing, uh, and I think it's a positive thing because obviously the sport's and entertainment, and and everyone wants to to keep those sort of heights of of quality up as as much as possible. And 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 to do that, you need to have squads. Uh, you need to have players as fresh as possible, and those five substitutes definitely help. I don't know, but I'm guessing that you'll have a particular fascination with Evan Ferguson as a player because he's got so much potential. And would you look at him as a, as a classic striker, a classic number nine? Do you, do you find him particularly interesting? He's in the classic mould, without doubt. Um, he's definitely somebody that I, I warm to because I see similarities between myself and, and, and his style of play. I must admit, I think he could be much, much better than I ever was, and I hope he. I hope he is. As a striker that took a long time to grow into his body. I mean, when I was eighteen, I was stick thin, and I was uh, pushed over by a strong gust of wind. So to watch Evan, his physicality, and and not only his strength, but also to know how to use his body. So, so, so for me. I was half loaded towards the end of my career of, of being able to use my body and buy free kicks and take that pressure off off the team when needed. And that was that was a career long experience of learning to lose use my body at the lower leagues. Make no bones about it, getting bullied on, on regular occasions as a youngster. But for him to to have that knack already, I think it's really really special. And and, and when when I look at him. The only people you can liken it to are the people like Wayne Rooney mm. when he stepped into the game and he had that physicality. But I've, I've played with players that were big and strong from a young age, but never throughout their whole career, I may add, ever learned how to use their body. Already, Evan's got a really good understanding and that will develop and it will get better. And that's just, that's just a little part, I think, his demeanour, the way that he stepped into the Premier League, he scored goals, 
but I think everyone will tell you around the building he's still the same Evan Ferguson he's still a nice kid nothing's changed about him which which is really refreshing so I think the right attitude to to remain at the top and, and, and to keep learning and keep developing is it in there that, that, that comes naturally and that's probably from his upbringing and his family uh, and then the final piece of the jigsaw is, is keeping calm in that precise moment when all else around them lose their heads I mean and, and to be able to do that again for me at 18 I was snatchy chances would fall um, I was probably better than others but I could I still knew that there was a lot of work to be done and when I finally got my chance in the Premier League it it came at the right time for me because I'd calmed down in front of goal I'd, I'd settled in that moment and in that in that that second that split second of clarity that you need but for him to have it 18 it's just do you know what it's just so exciting so when you say calming down you mean going cold slowing your brain down yeah, yeah um, it's how can I describe it it's about having a one on one and thinking in your mind I'm going to score I'm going to score and almost celebrating before you've done it before actually doing the deed and having that yeah I suppose I suppose a cold cold is a, is a good way to describe it and it it, 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 it goes back to a killer instinct Mm. Um, and, and that's something that I had to develop I always had a knack of scoring goals and always been in the right time and scabbing them in from left, right and centre but to have that knack already at his age it's, uh, yeah I, I just think everything's in place for him to have a, an amazing career We hear that phrase natural finisher all the time is that, is that, is that something or is that a myth that somebody's oh, born to score? I think it's something <laughs> obviously uh, <laughs> Yeah, it is a thing because I couldn't tackle like Donkey. I couldn't do all the things like, like other players. I, I wouldn't have the creativity that Pascal's got. So I think you are born to do a certain thing and, and I think it's it's in you. It's something that you were born up with. It's it's like a trait of your character almost. And and I think to be a striker, you have to be a tiny bit selfish. And I was an only child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Right, we're getting right into the psychology of it now. Yeah. No, but I, th- I think it is. It's ingrained in you yeah. as as what you are as 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 a footballer. I think you you are slightly that as a person as well. So were you like that as a kid? Then you did you kind of you know hoard your possessions? No, not my possessions, but like I was addicted to scoring goals. I loved it always. Like for me, playing right back and watching watching a score, no interest. Like, even even to being a professional footballer and week in, week out training was like, it was okay. But when we started finishing, that's what I loved. That's what, that's what made me really sort of excited. That's what made me want to get involved. And then, and then ultimately playing the game in front of people, which is, believe it or not, I've, I've played with many footballers that, Monday to Friday out of this world as soon as you put them in, in front of a, a crowd or a pressurised situation would completely melt whereas I was probably the opposite I was probably rubbish Monday to Friday and then on a Saturday it was a chance to do what you dreamed of well, so, you, so you fed off the crowd it didn't, it didn't yeah. daunt you at all fed off, fed off the crowd massively home crowd even more so away crowds loved being hated mm. so you, how have you replaced that I mean by going on the radio I suppose 
No, you don't. You do, do you know what? You don't replace it. No. And if you try, if it, so, I think this is unfortunately where a lot of ex-sport people come unstuck when they retire because it's impossible to find that high, even if you do go chasing for it. Um, so that was something that I sort of just said to myself: be thankful it happened, rather than look for something to replace it. And I am. Yeah, well, you've built a, a, a you know, a, a good new life for yourself, haven't you? And so what you're saying is you didn't go into kind of grief mode and you didn't feel lost and you didn't think, why aren't people cheering for me anymore? <laughs> <laughs> well, they are actually, but just why in a different way. Why aren't right? people jeering anymore? <laughs> along the lines. Um, yeah, I felt lost. Yeah, without doubt. I, th- I think to be... To be off a structure, I, I'm I'm one of the lucky ones. It was my choice to finish playing football. Um, I was fit, I was able, I could have continued, um, but I felt as though it was the right time for me personally. I think I'd just probably lost that little bit of hunger that you need to be a footballer. Uh, I'd also had it really good. I um I played for the football club for five years at home. Towards the end of my career, I could pick the kids up, drop them off, uh, drop them off at school, pick them up. I had a home life, but I also had my work life. Uh, and as soon as that came to an end and I had to get back on the road, I found that really difficult. And and I knew the time was pretty much up. So I was lucky that, that I got to call time on my own career. That is half the reason why I announced in, I think it was May or June, I think it was around about the time, because I didn't want it to, to bubble along and announce in August or whatever, and people would be like, oh, he hasn't got a club, that's why he's retired. So I wanted it to be my decision. So, so that, for me, was like mental clarity. But without doubt, when you get taken off a structure that you've been on for 20-plus years of being told where to be, what to do, what to wear, what to eat, um, <laughs> when you can go out, when you can't go out to a certain extent, to be pulled off that is like a shock to the system which is difficult and which, yeah, I felt lost at moments. Um, I, I think it's, it's it's normal to feel lost. It's just how, how you deal with that. But one thing that I really wanted to do was to, uh, a pact that I sort of made with myself was to, to keep exercising. Because I just feel as though, you, again, that was part of our structure that we, that we did every day. And to, to lose the, the structure and to lose the exercise, I think it's, it's just too much. So so I wanted to exercise so you could exercise all your worries, all your emotions out. And luckily for me, I decided uh, to, to to go down a new career path before I finished playing football. Yeah, because you backed yourself to start something fresh, didn't you? You didn't wait until the career had ended and then try to make some decisions. You sort of had a plan, didn't you? Oh, I can't, I can't claim to be one of those footballers. Uh, I was definitely a footballer that fell into the category of, I can't learn that, I can't sign on that course because I'm, I'm just, I've got to concentrate on what I'm doing now. Bear in mind, I was probably at the height of my career then as well. So, so that that was the best it ever got for me. So I felt like if I took my eye off the ball at that stage then it all could have come crashing down. But in hindsight, footballers do need to prepare. I am really lucky. The media is something that I took an interest in and Chris Uton, who was in charge at the time, really supported me in that. He would let me leave early on uh, a Monday, especially to to go up to a channel in, in London to do a show. And 
I kind of had a loose plan, let's say, but without committing too heavily. Mm. You are a two-spell legend at this club, 2008, 2011, and then 2016 to 2021. Talk me through both of the departures, because you could have stayed here for at least 13 years, potentially, but there's, but you're... I don't think I could have, but... No? No? <laughs> well, I know, you know, the, there are manager issues and churn and change, but... What I mean is, just tell us why you left on both those occasions. Well, one exit was much easier than the other. <laughs> Sign up and join millions of sports fans putting their trust in my diesel claim. Proud sponsors of the official Brighton & Hove Albion podcast. Why did I leave? I left because, as a footballer, you want to be loved and you want to feel wanted. And... The first time I didn't, um, we decided to break our transfer record to bring another striker in. And when that happens, as the uh, as the striker that's already at the football club, you're, you know your time's up. Uh, and I was never one at any of my clubs to hang around and pick up a wage. That wasn't in me. I wanted to play as much football as I possibly could while I could. And then the second time I left, I... I it falls into that category I could have hung around. I probably would have got more game time than I think I I, I, I thought I would have at, at that precise moment when I decided to leave. But ultimately, you back yourself as, as, a, as a professional athlete, as a, as a goal scorer, you back yourself to, to go away and play games and score goals and continue. And you know what? If you keep doing that, it would never end. It's only when you fail you stop. And ultimately, when I went to Not- uh, Watford and when I went to Nottingham Forest... I couldn't do it anymore. Mm. Yeah, because no matter how good you are, if a new manager comes in and he has an idea about how he wants to play that doesn't necessarily fit your attributes or whatever, it's it, it's easy just to get shifted to one side, isn't it? And when you get shifted to one side, it, it's it's a problem, isn't it? Is that what happened with Graham Potter at all? Um, I think slightly it did, yeah. I, I'd been the, the top scorer for a number of seasons before Graham came in. Um, Graham definitely had a... A different style to, to what, what we've been playing and I suppose when I look at the the bigger picture the club have been quite reliant on my goals for a number of years and I was no spring chicken um, so whether it was Graham whether it was the football club wanting to, to bring a new dawn in and, and someone younger that they could rely on um, I totally understand that, and that is all. That is what football is. You're always looking to better yourself. You, you're looking to continue, and at, at some stage in the very near future, of when we're talking about, I wasn't going to be able to do it anymore. So I, I can totally understand it from both Graham's point of view, from the club's point of view. Football stops for no man. So um, yeah, I mean, it bruises your ego a little bit, but I decided to to, to move on, like I said, to, to Watford and Nottingham Forest. Talking of managers, you've spent uh, quite a bit of time with Roberto De Zerbi on the US tour uh, over the summer. And I wondered what you made of him, what you make of him, uh, you know, personality, uh, method of working, philosophy. What, what impression did you get of him out there? That I would love to play for him. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't? Um, from spending time with Roberto and spending time with some of the, the, the players and what they say about him. I mean, I, I just think he's 
he's just like an enigma he's just he lives and breathes football um, and his philosophies are there for, for I suppose everyone to see on, on the on the field uh, at the uh, at the weekends um, but I think that the way the way he puts it over to the boys and so I, I speak to some lads that say like I never seen football like this until I played under Roberto and that's it's, I think that's pretty amazing considering how long they've played and the level they've played at and then his demeanour is just you you can see why the group want to play for him he's got the trust of them I think they've got the trust of him as well it's just it's just a really special concoction and I think that we need to enjoy Roberto while we've got him do you think his his style of play is new is it is it distinctive is it unlike anything else in the league yes I do I do because no one can stop it because I'd never seen it before. So, some things that, that, that the lads tell me and, and then I can see it on the field. I'm like, so simple. Why didn't we think of that before? But I think everyone falls into that category. Um, listen, I have no doubt that Roberto will manage one of the biggest clubs in the world. And I obviously want him to stay at the football club for as long as possible, but it's inevitable with, with his quality uh, and his demeanour that he'll have his pick of football clubs after us. He obviously has a big idea. and I'm, I'm really interested in that, this idea that fans now want a manager to have this big idea that they never depart from. You know, that people talk about Postacoglu at Spurs and say, well, that's the way he plays and he won't change for, for, for anyone, you know. And, and it, it makes me quite slightly suspicious because football managers historically are pragmatic, aren't they? You've got to make a lot of decisions and you've got to be flexible and you have to be willing to adapt. So he looks like a guy with a big idea, but he's also adaptable. Is that how you see him? Yeah. Yeah, without doubt. It's, basically, you're asking, is he a one-trick pony? And no, he's not. He's, 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 he's a very, very good coach. Um, and and I, think, I think you can see that from the different ways that Brighton play and the different ways they win. Um, I felt as though last season, I seen a lot more of Dunkey standing on the ball, attracting that press. But all of a sudden, people work it out. I think even in the semi-final against Manchester United, they didn't come out and play. They did not want to press Dunkey. It was they just sat in sort of a a low to mid block, and it was almost like have it. We don't even want to engage with you because we know if we engage with you, we know what's going to happen. So then you get to the point where everyone knows what to do against you. So then you've got to have different ideas, and clearly because we keep winning, Roberto has them. And a measure of a top manager is when you look at the squad and you see 10 or 12 players have improved under that manager. That would apply here, wouldn't it? Where you could pick out so many players who were better than they were 12 months ago. Well, yeah, I'd probably argue that every one of them is better in different uh, regards. But I think for us to be playing almost two 11s at the moment and not really to be missing a beat... um, to lose players like Moises for the sums that we've lost him for and for Billy Gilmore just to, to slot right in there and look like he'd always played there, I think is down to the manager getting his philosophy and his message over to not his first 11, 25, all 25 that are named in the squad. And and that, and, and, and that even goes to the goalkeepers. 
in Barton and Jason, how they how they both slot in seamlessly. We see so many changes at the moment, and I understand there's a huge fixture list, and that those changes are going to continue. But no one misses a beat, and that is ultimately down to Roberto. And if there's a run of goals conceded, a higher run of goal conceded than you'd, than you'd ideally want, you, you would fancy him to correct that, wouldn't you? Either tactically or somehow, or or does it does it not matter if but, if you if with a winning record. Sorry, like his. Would you mean like the weekend? Yeah, the weekend. Well, to, to put it right, what next game? Over the season, so that you so that you don't become known as a team who who concedes a lot of goals. I think is, I think the way that we play is always going to be entertaining, for one reason or another. Um, we're never really going to be a side that wins one nil, because we're not pragmatic like that. We're exciting. We take the game to, to 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 the opposition. We try and break them down rather than protect what we've got, which I feel as a football fan is the right way to play the game. I don't want to see 1-0 wins and grind it out. Sometimes it's entertaining, without doubt, don't get me wrong, in the right circumstances. But it's to see the likes of Evan and Jao Pedro and Ansu Fati, that is what gets you off your chair, and and that is, and that is why everyone across Europe is in love with Brighton at the moment. The point you made about you know the players wanting to play for him—that's true of every great manager, I would argue. It's true. It was true of Ferguson. It's true of Guardiola. It's true of Klopp. The players, the players believe in the manager. They want to please the manager, and they'll go with the manager. Um, He's definitely got that, hasn't he? And I mean, in your career, did you have that with managers where you just you sat in the dressing room and you thought, "I'll go with him"? Yeah, without doubt. And and my belief is, at, especially at this level, with I suppose lower down the leagues, you've got to buy in because financially, you're 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 sort of you need the manager, you need to do well collectively. But at this level, when you're talking about well-off individuals that have options. If you can get 25 players to buy in in the Premier League, you're halfway there. And I think Roberto's got that knack and also he's got the tactical nous as well. And I think that's why, what that is why he will eventually go on to, to be a, an amazing manager. Not that he's not already, but I just mean maybe recognised more throughout the world. But yeah... I've met the likes of Jose and Pep in tunnels and the way that they treat you makes you feel special. And it can only be a a fleeting hello or a shake of the hand, but some managers have just got it. I always say, if if you're waiting for a meeting and the guy, the lads are gossiping, they're chatting about what happened last night, who got up to what, and you're like a bunch of school children. And... Sometimes the door opens and that noise level never changes. But sometimes that door opens and and you might not even be able to see the door, but all of a sudden there's a hush around the squad and that's an aura. And that's, for me, what is huge for a manager and Roberto's got that. When Roberto walks in a room, everyone knows it. Yeah, and there's a very few, a very small number of managers who can say that, aren't there, really? I mean, at the very elite level, I mean. Yeah, it's... 
it's something that people can obviously get better at. But I also think it's something that you, you you've got as well. It's it's something. Yeah, it's 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 something that you can't just go and learn it on a course. You can get better at it, but it, it's either something that you, that you're sort of blessed with or you're not. And like I said, the people that I mentioned sort of in in the game in my era are, are your Mourinho's and your Peps. Um, and he definitely falls into that bracket of man management. Mm. Well, I wrote Sir Alex Ferguson's autobiography with him, and I, I would argue that his his real talent, his brilliance, was psychological. It was an ability to look into people and work them out. Uh, he had a kind of incredible psychological talent for uh, seeing how he needed to treat people as individuals, because people thought he was he treated everybody the same, and he was you know he shouted. He didn't really shout very often, but he could work you out. He could work everybody out. And he worked out how to get the best out of people. So that's what we're saying, isn't it, really? Yeah. And and I think it's it's also that seeing if people are on board. Because it only needs one or two people to spread through the camp of negativity. Always always mourning, always questioning. And if you're aware of those and you've got the power as a manager and the football clubs, whoever you're in charge of, give you the power to be able to oust those individuals, then that, that that's huge. And I think I think Roberto, it's it's sort of you're either with me or you're not. And 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 that is it in no uncertain terms. And I think that's why you see a collective all pulling in one direction like we are at the moment. And, and it's not a myth, is it, that some dressing rooms will run themselves to a certain degree? They'll they'll, they'll have the standards. The, the standards will be imposed by the senior players. You, you must have been in quite a few dressing rooms like that. Yeah, I was lucky to be in a, a couple of dressing rooms like that. Pro- probably the best dressing rooms of my career were the ones that ran themselves. Um, yeah, a number of leaders in in in, in both ones that, that I'm thinking about right now. Both successful and. I suppose that is down to bringing in the the type of you obviously you you look at a player and we have a, a very little window of seeing him and and what he can do in 90 minutes and we're like oh he looks good to have I would, I would it would be a good addition but it's much much more than that because you you need to have the right characters and when I say characters I mean people that are going to set standards that are going to be in the gym in the morning, asking questions of the people that aren't in the gym. Um, the ones that are going to stay out late at training, that are going to arrive on time to meetings, just set standards day in, day out, that ultimately lead to building something special. And and also, we, we, we talk about the manager, also help the manager weed out the ones that aren't really on board. I mean, you can you can... When there's a strong group... You can drag a few people along and they become part of it. But also, if they kick back against it, you know they're not for the cause. Mm. Well, we started this conversation by saying that, you know, if you go from where Brighton were to where Brighton are, you need players to carry you there, don't you? You need the right people. And um, so why don't we go through a few um, memories, personal memories for you, from your two great spells at Brighton. Standout moment? Well... I suppose I'm lucky. There's been a number of standout moments in an Albion shirt, but even though I was immensely proud to 
help the football club stay in the Premier League, it's got to be the championship winning moment and, 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 and getting over that, what is a huge hurdle, uh, a football club that never been in the Premier League before, uh, that was geared up and so ready for it. So to have a, a mission at the start of the season and be able to sit back at the end and say you completed it. And do you know what? Even though I'd lived in the city for a number of years, the turnout that day, it bowled me over. I didn't realise it was it was a really, really special day that will uh, live long in the memory. Maybe that was the day Brighton became a true football town or city, you know, with that. Listen, I, I didn't see Brighton in the best light. So back in, in, in the Goldstone, when the stadium was in the heart of the city, I'm sure it was a very different football club to the one that I came to at the Withdean. It lost a generation of fans because you had the likes of Chelsea, Arsenal, whoever, just up the road, an hour away on the train. And it was much more desirable. They had a roof at the, at the very least. <laughs> um, so I so I came to, to Brighton at a, at a really peculiar time because mm. I would walk around this city and I wouldn't see one kid with a Brighton shirt on. I, I maybe stretch that a little bit. I'd say maybe two out of 50 in a Brighton shirt. If we went if we went to a, a soccer camp or something, there's barely any kids with Brighton shirts on. And now when I go to one, I reckon 90, 95% have got Brighton shirts on. And that, for me, is down to what Tony's done. And that is the measure of success. I mean, yeah, you look at the first team and you look at the Premier League and you look at... You look at Europe and it's brilliant. Don't get me wrong, it's it's amazing. But this football club has been rediscovered by local people, which is more special than anything. Yeah, yeah, well said. Um, standout goal? Standout goal uh, is always billed as the one against Man United, uh, the one over De Gea, but it's not for me the one, the one that meant the most to me and I felt lifted a huge weight off our shoulders and it was just everything about it. So it was it was the, it was the goal at Loftus Road, QPR season. I think it was the Easter weekend. I think we had sort of like a Friday and a Monday game or something. And it was that point of the season where you've been through your December, January, February, those cold, hard days where you're really grinding out. You can't even think about summer. It's so far away. And let me tell you, footballers live for six weeks in the summer. <laughs> so in the heart of the season it's so difficult just grind out results 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 and we managed to do that and this one one evening Friday night just the night was a little bit lighter it was a little bit warmer there was a buoyancy in the away end and it was a it was a crucial weekend and, and we we managed to to get over the line and, and I got the opening goal and that one there um, for the magnitude that we're on the home straight that we won the game and for the away end to be packed and for it to be at that end that I scored at was just, it was an extra special one. Was there a better finisher than you in any of the teams you played in? <laughs> <laughs> this should be interesting. Oh. <laughs> a few people will be cursing me right now. Um, was there a better finisher? Can you throw some names at me? <laughs> no, that's your job. Nicky Forster was a good finisher. Extremely selfish. He'll probably say the same about me. <laughs> um, Franz Andaza was a good finisher. Blast from the past. He had a knack of being in the right place at the right time. An annoying knack, by the way. Um, who else more recently 
I would like to think that during my time I was the best finisher. Well, you were top scorer how many times at the club? I know you, uh, you've got that down somewhere, haven't you? Um, yeah, I have to look it up. <laughs> and no, I'm not, I'm I'll not, just say I'm every not year. sure. No. Um, I don't think every year I got injured in my first spell a couple of times. Um, and then my last season, I wasn't didn't play much. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I'd back myself to being the best out-and-out natural finisher. Who, was, who had the best footballing brain? Oh, the German king. Without, without any doubt, without any doubt, on a different level. So selfless. Um, made everyone around him look like a better player, including myself. Um, I'm just delighted that he's eventually got his chance for Germany because Germany have been sleeping on this lad for a long time. Um, a lot of people, including managers, turn their nose up him because he's got no pace. Doesn't matter. When you think a second or two ahead of everyone else on the field, you don't need that extra yard. And uh, yeah, that's why he's continuing to and always has done it in the Brighton shirt. In, in the Premier League era, uh, is the best signing the club's ever made. Possibly the best value signing in the history of the Premier League. Three million quid for a player who can do that. I think there's a stat out there that, that since he joined the Premier League, he's, he's created the second most opportunities behind De Bruyne. De Bruyne is surrounded by world-class players. Mm. Pascal, unfortunately, wasn't at the beginning. It might be becoming, they might be getting there now, but at the beginning, I mean, yeah. There was actually a moment. Um, so he's, he's come over, relative, unknown. Um, Sanderlad, Pascal Gross, great. Let's see what he's about. And he, um, we're training and we, I think we're playing sort of a possession game. It was, it was over quite a big distance. And you could tell he was really, really neat and tidy and he's right foot and he ping one right foot and looks good good play, this kid. And then uh and all of a sudden he's just Cruyff back and he's just done exactly the same on his left foot and you're like, Oh, this he can play. This lad can play and then ever since that it's not just his ability, it is his uh him as a person fits in. Yeah, I mean he had a spell under Graham where he didn't play much. Uh, wasn't one to spit out his dummy, got his head down, supported those around him. Um, yeah, really opened my eyes to to being selfless to a team. Pascal did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant player. Uh, and finally, the, the the strongest or biggest leader, Lewis Dunk. Not in the early years. <laughs> I've seen a lot of Dunk who don't forget. Um, he's definitely grown into one. That that's without doubt. Um, I think he's led by example for a long time but I think he's, he's more of a leader vocally now than he ever has been. And and that is ultimately something that you, you grow into, I think, as, as a footballer. I think that championship winning squad, there was a lot of leaders. And, and early on in the Premier League, you're Shane Duffy's, um, you're Dale Stevens. Yeah, when your back's against the wall uh, and you've got to be counted, they were the guys you'd sort of look to. Mm. And we always do, uh, with all our guests, we do three things you love about Brighton. You won't find that difficult. Uh, three things I love about Brighton. The city in general. City and the club. Yeah, city, the club. And I've got to say my wife, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, do you know what? Ever, ever since I moved here, uh, it took me a little while to settle and um, to get used to it. It felt a very long way from home, which it is. But it's a place that 
I don't think I'd leave now. It's, it, this this is home. This is the the longest I've ever spent anywhere in in my life. Um, and this is where I now regard home. Yeah, Glenn Murray. Some people some people shape the history of football clubs. Uh, you're one of those. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. We've got some very special guests lined up from Brighton's past and present, ready to share their knowledge of the club. So make sure you're following this podcast wherever you listen to them, and you'll be the first to hear those interviews. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. Check if you are eligible for significant compensation for free at mydieselclaim.com. Oh, it's a tough one, that. Ask me again. This podcast is a VoiceWork Sport production for Brighton and Hove Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network.